This is a special bonus edition of Judaism Unbound, Digital Shabbos. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are back for a midweek edition of Judaism Unbound. And we are going to be doing some midweek editions of Judaism Unbound as we go forward here during this period of physical distancing due to the coronavirus and COVID-19. And the reason for that is actually that we got some really great feedback on our last episode. I had asked on that last episode whether it was too soon to be doing futurology, you know, whether that's something for later. And we had an impulse that it wasn't too soon, that it's actually the opposite of too soon, that if we don't start planning now for what I've been calling the after, then the after is going to arrive, we hope sooner than we imagine. And even if it's a long time from now, it'll hit us sooner than we imagine. And it'll be just as sudden, just as jarring as going into this physical distancing period was. And we're not going to be ready as a Jewish community. And so we got a lot of feedback from people that some of what we were discussing last Friday in last Friday's episode, which we actually recorded a little bit before that, was really helpful in their thinking. And we thought, well, this is on our minds a lot. And we're trying to think and write about what we're talking about here. And let's just do an extra midweek edition of Judaism Unbound every week or almost every week, where we'll try to actually process some of the things that we're thinking about with relation to what's going on today in the world, much more timely than we usually do with Judaism Unbound. And that'll also hopefully give us the opportunity to let the regular episodes of Judaism Unbound not be all COVID all the time. And so we're going to try that out and we'll see how it goes. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. So Lex, uh, thank you for indulging me and uh, letting us do this. No problemo. Uh, really, Lex is the person who carries the burden on, on this because uh, it's just an extra hour for me, but it's uh, more hours for him as our editor. But we're going to try to do this lightly edited as well. So um, I wanted to start, Lex, just very briefly by talking about the Seders, because uh, when we recorded our last episode of Judaism Unbound, it was right before Passover. And uh, now it's just after the Seders. And I wanted to check in with you, see how did your digital Seder go? And uh, what are you thinking about on the other end of it? Yeah, my digital Seder was really good. Um, What it was, was... um, my mom in Milwaukee, um, shout out Mama Ruth Levid. Um, I've talked about the Seder many times before. It's a huge highlight of my year. Um, and it's a highlight of many people who attend year. And she did an incredible job um, on the spectrum of Zoom Seders doing the most what I would call sort of, I don't know, replication or something. Like she did a lot of prep work so that our Zoom Seder was able to be pretty similar to the seders that we've done in past years. And so that literally, um, for, for the attendees of our seder, about 75% who are in Milwaukee, I'm not one of them. She actually set up like a food pickup thing where people came and picked up food. So like people had the same foods. It was like sort of a share thing where people made various dishes and, um, did the drop offs and mom made a little package and then people came back and picked them up all with social distancing. Um, those of us who were out of town did not have that, but that that sort of helped in many ways set sort of a communal tone, even the fact that just everybody had to prepare, I think. Um, and then in terms of the ritualized parts, I kind of owned those. And similarly, we, if I'm being honest, it was very similar to our past year's seders, which is to say really great. Um, but like we all had a shared Haggadah. So we, we had, you know, our guidebook and, and it's one that we made eight years ago, um, which we might have to 
updated, not because of Zoom, but just because we want to update our Haggadah. We might have to do that soon. But um, we have a Haggadah that we made for this Seder eight years ago. And so my mom included in people's pickups, like a little version of that Haggadah. And if you weren't in Milwaukee, you had a PDF of the Haggadah. And so literally we were able to like follow along, turn the page in the same way that we have. And we didn't do it fully. There were a few points that we definitely went off script. But I'd say that that's honestly as much, Dan, because of our conversations about getting off book as it is about Zoom. Like we were actually able to simulate pretty much all of it. And it felt similar. Um, the one part that we weren't was the singing, the communal singing, which we still did, by the way. But I just said at the top, look, we're going to dive into this. We're going to do it. You have to keep the pace going because if you match everybody else's pace, it's going to slow down and get horrible. And it's just going to be funny. Like, we're just going to lean into this and like, Dayenu is going to be ridiculous. But like, that's kind of the fun anyway. So we did that. What we weren't able to do were we're singing things together that are more serious because that wouldn't have felt right. It, like, it, it is funny to hear the feedback, but that's really the only piece. Um, and the, the last thing I'd say is the Afi Komen hunt, I think, was a real highlight. We we did the, the one that I made and that was on our Jewish Live website. Um, and that was also kind of a replication of what we've done in past years. With we, We've always had a word search and then you unscramble certain words and then you find where the Afi Komen is. But the, the location was digital. Um, so what I'd say is it was actually a really similar Seder to past years. I wish I could say I, like, that we were like rap drastically creative, but we already had a pretty creative Seder and it was just about like figuring out how to migrate it into this digital space, less about coming up with a million new ideas, which I, I would want to do actually in the future, come up with more new, newfangled ways to go. But Dan, how did yours go? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was just thinking about that when when you were talking. I'm like, you know, I, I guess my Seder was kind of uh, similar to the way you're describing in that the content wasn't super, super new or creative, even though we had been talking about it for a couple of weeks. The truth is, I spent so much time talking about it and getting Jewish Live up and running that I didn't really have time to actually sit and think about how my Seder could be super, super duper creative this year uh, in digital ways. And so actually, I'm, I'm looking forward to that either next year or there's this thing called Pesach Sheni, which is uh, actually a concept from the Torah that if you are on a trip or somehow not able to celebrate the first Pesach, the regular Passover, at the right time, you have a kind of a do-over where you can do it again exactly one month later. And, you know, in the Torah, it's different because what that's really about is bringing a sacrifice. So they weren't really talking about doing a whole Seder a month later, but we can reinterpret it. And, and I'm actually kind of thinking about maybe we should do that this year just because I'd like another shot at it because I really didn't have time to plan properly. On the other hand, am I really going to do that in a month? I don't know. Um, so the other potential idea is that I, I, I there were certain things about it that were so great that I want to do a digital Seder again next year and maybe really start planning it long, long in advance. I would say that the main thing that was different for us was that our entire family, at least on my side of the family and my wife's side of the family, uh, there was another family involved in their their uh, family wasn't there. But our family, my, my dad, my wife's parents and all of our siblings and all of their children were there. And it was amazing. That has never happened before. And 
next year I would love to have all of our aunts and uncles and everybody, you know, and now that we kind of know that it works, that would be possible. And what was amazing was just every once in a while, you know, sometimes you were pseudo not fully aware that the people were there on Zoom. Another idea that I have is like, I want to, I have a projector and I want to project the Zoom screen onto the wall in our dining room so that the people are really, really big, because I think I'll be able to notice them more and remember that they're there. But every once in a while, my nephew, for example, would pipe up with an amazing interpretation or some idea, you know, and I was like, oh, I didn't even fully remember that he was there. So there was really just this amazing quality of just having the entire family together. And, and that's a way that I'm thinking about a digital Seder as being far superior to a regular Seder, because a regular Seder is wonderful for those who are there, but it totally sucks for the people that are not there. And it sucks to not be able to be with the people who are not there. And so Again, I'm going back to this question of maybe the uh, first night and the second night seders. Maybe the first night is a more traditional in person and the second night is a digital seder where we get the entire family together. We'll see. But I, I was very excited about the possibilities and a little little disappointed that I didn't fully execute on them. Um, I do want to say one thing that you created, by the way, this amazing uh, digital Afikoman hunt that you shared with some people. Other people have created some amazing things, and they are already starting to send us some of the things that they created based on a call that we put out on Friday at, on our show. And I want to put that call out again. I want to say that if you have did something special for this pe Passover that really worked and that you think is really sort of worthy to be shared with others, we would love to collect those and we'll post them soon on, on our website, but they'll be available for next year. And so for those who are really eager to see what the people did this year and what creativity there was and kind of uh, inspect it, uh, much, much, much before next year's Passover, we're going to we're going to try to make some of that possible. So please send us what, what you did so that we can know. Yeah, that call is super important. We really love hearing. And um, what I've loved about Jewish Live Connect, our Facebook group, is that we've been able to get some of that really quickly. Um, so feel free to submit it there. Feel free to email us, whatever works. Um, yeah, I, I I think that one piece of why so many of these Zoom seders went well, I mean, look, I... I probably have a biased sample set because, you know, we're digital Judaism people. So people mention to us when digital Jewish stuff goes well, but like occasionally they mention when it doesn't. Um, I've heard mostly really positive things from people who did Zoom seders, including from people who were deeply nervous or anxious about it beforehand and didn't feel like it could work out. Um, that's not the majority. I actually think there were a lot of people um, who went in having high expectations and expecting to have a good Passover, which is awesome. Like I candidly was a little surprised by that. I, I expected more of a downer kind of feeling beforehand, but um, but it wasn't that. But so uh, one thing I think worked really well is something I want to highlight, which is what we didn't do by necessity was we didn't have like uh, a bunch of people gathered in a room in Milwaukee for mine and then me and a few others in other cities on Zoom, zooming into that space. Like, I, I want to say that, so this sounds really nitty gritty, but I actually think it's a super crucial distinction. No, and it really connects because, to what yeah, I'm about to talk about yeah, for Shabbat. Yeah, that, yeah. no, uh, yeah, I'm getting, that's, that's where I'm going is like, there's a huge, huge difference between what I would call, uh, I don't know, it's like a, it's like, it's like if you're in a helicopter, like watching over an event versus everybody's on the plane together. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, if, if there is any sort of, so I'm thinking of before this moment of physical distancing to, to go to Shabbat, because that's where we're going. Like, 
most of the live stream Shabbat services, honestly, all of the ones I can think of right now that were sort of mainstream Shabbat services that were live streamed were there's a bunch of people at the service, at a synagogue, maybe 20, maybe 100, maybe uh, like however many, and they're they're praying normally. They are in that space and then people at home are watching. And they are, and watching is the verb. They're, they're watching, and they may also be participating, but they're still not doing the same thing. Now that is that's not nothing, and there's still some there's still some that sort of resemble that in a variety of ways um, in this moment. Even though there's not like a congregation gathered, there's still that situation. But what's very different is when no there is no one home base that others are watching in on. There's, there's no home base where we're all in our own screens or in our own locations. And all of a sudden, that's very equalizing. And it means that nobody is the viewer or the, the outsider because there is no, there's no insight. Like there might be somebody leading, but it's different because they don't have, they're not making eye contact with one set of people and not making eye contact with the others that are watching on Zoom. Like everybody is in the same boat. And I think for the satyrs, all of us automatically did that second version where we're all sort of in this on the same level. Even like I was leading, but I didn't, I wasn't at the front of the room. There is no front of the room in Zoom. Like there's speaker view where you pin one person, I guess, but like it's, it's different. And, and everybody was on, everybody was in a, a shared space. So I think that with, with Shabbat especially, but with all Jewish rituals, I think that we can basically state a principle at this point of digital Judaism, which is dangerous, but I'm going to say it like it's just better when 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 all of us are in a shared modality versus when you try to split between proximal geographically located situations. That's, you know, people call that on the ground. I'm trying to get away from on the ground because I but um, there's a difference between having one subset of the group together in one sense and the others in a different sense versus having everybody collected together in the same modality. And if that modality is digital, it turns out that can still work. It's just you all have to be on the same page. And I'm saying page literally, like you can't be in different, uh, you know, you get it. Yeah, well, so that, that's really interesting on, on two levels. One is that I want to return to this question about the satyrs. I think we're going to be able to talk about them in even more depth in a week or two as we start hearing from people. So let's uh, put the pause on that right now. But I definitely want to return to this because it's important on, on many, many levels, not least of which is helping people process their Passover and think about next year's Passover. Uh, but also, um, it's just a, 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 a something that's you know happening and that's on our minds. And I think we're still sort of collecting data. I will note that uh, the way that you just described it, my Seder did not quite fall into what you're describing because we are sort of quote, co-quarantining with another family. And so our Seder actually had uh, a substantial number of people in it. And the gotcha, other people gotcha. were sort of guests at our Seder. And as I reflect on that, there was a dynamic there. And that's why I kind of said, oh, I kind of forgot that my nephew was out there because I was a little uh, bit more focused on the people in the room than the people who were on Zoom, even though there were many more people on Zoom than in the room. And that's something for me to reflect on. And it's something I think for all of us to reflect on. And it connects to what I want to talk about in terms of my experience this past Shabbat. So because we just launched some pages on the Jewish Live website, which I would encourage everybody to check out. There's a services section, which means 
religious services or prayer services or whatever you want to call them on the Jewish Live website. And right now there are the Friday night services and the Saturday morning services are pretty well filled out. And they include some number of what we've called featured services. And those are services that we know to be especially focused on delivering a very, very high quality streaming experience. And then there's um, a whole bunch of comprehensive listings of all the streaming services that we could find out. And it's no knock on them. I mean, they might also be incredibly calculated towards streaming. We just didn't know. And so we, somebody else collected a database and we validated the database and we posted all the services that we know about. So go to those pages. Uh, I think it's uh, www.jewishlive.org services. And then you can get to the different services and, um, and see them. And the... And and you check them out. And if your synagogue's not there, but they do have streaming services, please either you fill it in and and, and uh, there's a form that you can tell us about them or have somebody else do that if, if it wouldn't be appropriate for you to. But anyway, we worked over the last week or so on validating this large database. I think it was something like 200 different synagogues or services. And we um, had some folks uh, validate them. Um, it was kind of a sweatshop of uh, link validation. Thank you to my uh, sister and nephews and uh, also Karen rice Med by the person who assembled them in the first place. And anyway, I spent this past Shabbat sort of almost revalidating them, not because I didn't trust the validators, but just because I wanted to check it out because we could. And so I actually spent a lot of this past Shabbat just popping in and out of these different streaming services. And by the way, I found all the links worked. And... Um, <laughs> And, and and I and I experienced a few things. And by the way, I'm planning to do this again in a more serious way this coming weekend because my main purpose this weekend was just to make sure kind of the links worked. Whereas next weekend, what I really want to do is start to really experience these services a little bit and see if maybe there's some that we should be putting in the featured section, for example, or or other ways that we can sort of understand and highlight what's happening. But I did experience a few things, even in just that very brief pop in, pop out, and I want to share those with you and with the folks who are listening and watching, um, because I think it's uh, useful to sort of um, sort of hold up a mirror. I mean, just to say like, hey, maybe we don't know what's happening elsewhere in the world. What maybe our synagogue should do something different or whatever. And um, and then have a little bit of discussion about it. So I'll say that I noticed three main things. One, the synagogue services that were only a Zoom link, I did not attend. Why? Because I felt really uncomfortable that I was going to pop into a Zoom meeting and maybe there are only a very small number of other people there and they'll see me. And I was only going to be there for 30 seconds and, and I was going to leave and I didn't want them to feel insulted. And I also didn't feel all that comfortable just popping in if they were going to know that I was there. And all of these reasons that I was very nervous about popping into a Zoom uh, meeting only. And I think that that my, I have a I have a quick question. Yeah. Did you if the answer is no, I'm like, did you check if they were webinar format or meeting format? Because and I'm I'm not to get nitty gritty, but I think that could make a big difference. Yeah, I didn't even know how to check that other than popping in with the link. So if there's a way to know that from the gotcha. number of the meeting or something, uh, but I didn't know. I'll, that's something that we should learn. I don't yeah. I don't know that there is, but and just I'm to explain look that into it's it. because in yeah. a webinar they you they can't see that you're there in quite the same way or they probably won't notice. Whereas if it's a meeting, uh, you're much more visible. And so uh, I but as but if there was just a Zoom, I, I didn't click on it. And you know, I think that that's really something to note for people. It wasn't something that was on my mind beforehand. It was just my own emotional experience as I was trying to do this. And I kind of had this feeling that I know is how everybody talks about the 
the the new person coming into a synagogue feels. You know, like if I'm totally exposed when I walk in the door, yep. then I'm not going to walk in the door, and I want I might want to find a way to connect anonymously. And and by the way, we've talked about that being a reason why synagogues should be streaming services because it allows people to get their first feel for the synagogue without exposing themselves. Now we can talk later and other times about you know the pros and cons about being a little braver, maybe, or whatever. But it was really significant, I think, to point out that that was my initial experience of the Zoom links. Now, when there were other kinds of links, whether it was Facebook or um, the synagogue's website or uh, YouTube or whatever it might have been, where I could come and sort of watch the service, it's it, the equivalent of maybe sitting behind a one-way mirror and watching the service, whereas I wasn't being seen. First of all, I felt much more comfortable doing that in this case. And here's what I saw, that, that there were two major uh, paradigms that I think are worth considering, and there was a little bit of a hybrid third. The first one is when the person leading the service, the rabbi, cantor, whoever it might be, is doing so from the synagogue building. Generally, when that was happening, there was a, a camera set up in the back of the synagogue room, just like their normal streaming services. These are probably synagogues that were already streaming before COVID-19 happened. And what they seem to be doing is exactly what they had been doing, which is just operating the camera that's in the back of the synagogue room and streaming it. And what I would say is what I saw usually was a single person, sometimes two or three, in a cavernous room that was clearly empty. And it kind of made me feel sort of sad. Now, I can imagine that it makes some of the people watching who are members of that community feel a little happy because they are able to reconnect to their synagogue building, which they love. So I don't put it down. I'm just saying what my experience was as an outside visitor was that it felt very sad because it felt very empty. And it also felt very distant because it was usually a small picture of a distant person because the camera is set up in the back of the room. Now we can ask the question, what's that experience like when the room is full? I would argue that it's actually not that different. Um, and and maybe it's, it's a concern about how streaming services are done. And uh, contra, by the way, to um, the, the, the larger synagogues that we were featuring on Jewish Live, even before the synagogue buildings were completely sort of emptied, were Central Synagogue and Park Avenue Synagogue in New York. And the reason why we were featuring those was because even though they are streaming from their regular synagogue, um, you know, sanctuaries, they had a multi-camera setup so that it wasn't like one camera in the back of the room that made you feel kind of like a voyeur. Uh, it was actually their close-ups of the rabbi, close-ups of the cantor singing and, and things like that. So it was a much richer experience. Uh, and I'll get back to those synagogues in a second. The The other thing that I, that I experienced, the other genre that I experienced as I was visiting, and by the way, I would say like I probably visited more synagogue services than anybody in the world would be my guest this past Shabbat, which is also an interesting thing to talk about. Um, but what I saw was that there were a lot of synagogues that, or other kinds of services, they're not always synagogues, where the, um, it was basically in the rabbi's house, in the cantor's house, and you would see them in their living room, you know, often with a fancy mic like I have here, you know, um, and they would be playing music or singing or whatever. And usually it wouldn't be that there, if there was a rabbi and a cantor, they weren't in the same room. So you would see like Zoom speaker view and you would see one or the other at different times. And it was like me in this picture right now, those who are listening can't see it, but it's a close up of me. And it felt very intimate. And it felt like, wow, this rabbi, I mean, take even, for example, Central Synagogue, this rabbi, Angela Buckdahl, who 
I only know from, you know, she's like a star. Like I, you know, I only see her in like fancy three camera shoots, you know, and here I am in her house and she's talking right to me. It was, it was very intimate. And then there, and, and that was, and so Central Synagogue has gone to that style. And um, contra to a Park Avenue synagogue, which is very interesting, which has some of that style. And also the cantor is still in their uh, synagogue sanctuary, I guess probably because of the acoustics and whatnot. But because they have such a beautiful camera setup, it's still a close-up of the cantor. And so it's still a pro- it's actually kind of an interesting hybrid experience where you see the cantor in the synagogue and the rabbi in his home. And then there's like... Yeah. B-mitzvahs, which are really interesting because there's like cameras, views of the B-mitzvah family sitting like in their kitchen and they're all dressed up and it's really quite lovely. And um, yeah. anyway, then the last thing I just want to say is that that I think that, um, it, that it was just very interesting to see this other style where it's much more intimate style. And personally, I felt really that that was really uh, the one that, that I was sort of most attracted to and most interested in saying. I have more to say about that, but I just wanted to get your initial impressions on that uh, overview. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've had a similar experience. I mean, we relate to Zoom differently. I think I'm just on this is more of a just social characteristics thing, I think, more than like a technology. Like, I'm a, I might be a little less nervous about going into Zoom rooms where I don't know the people. Um, I'm still nervous about it, but I, I think I might have taken the plunge in some of those situations. But I think it's worth noting exactly what you did, which is like, I'm also that person with synagogue. Like, I, I I'm comfortable walking into a random right. new synagogue space in a way that many people aren't that that's neither me being right nor that, that nobody's right or wrong there right it's just like um there i'm aware that i'm not the only kind well, of person yeah, and there's, there's lots plenty, of kinds of people um, in the world yeah, and that's part yeah. of what synagogues should be thinking about when it's right. not COVID 19 you know? yeah and and so like for me, what you noted in terms of the differences in feel is super important and i love that you did so in a way that reflects not just on the now, but on the before too. Like, like maybe this is a consistent problem with live streaming services with a camera in the back of the beam. I mean, I've been in some of these converse, conversations with some synagogues where they're talking about how the live stream experience should be. And many that I've been in, I'm not going to say all, but many, the clear goal is to best simulate what one would experience if you were in the room. Now, that by definition is, that's a goal that you can't achieve 100%. If your goal is to replicate a different thing, you can't be that different thing fully. I mean, I think of like even the best photocopies, even the most technologically up-to-date like version ways we have of replicating pieces of paper or anything or taking photos, like none of them actually capture it 100%. So even if you pulled that off to the best ability that you could, it's still not going to be as good. And and honestly, I think that's part of the point. I think they want that to be the case. I think that synagogues, they want it to be so that the in-person is still better than what you get watching at home because they want you to come. Right, like, right. I want to come back not, around to that's that, not yes. Them, that's not them being evil, but like that's where the, the, the agenda is not we are equally interested in people watching on live stream and people watching in person. So we're going to make both really great. It's this is the best one. This one, for those who can't do the best one, 
should also, but like it's not – we're going to do what we can, but it's not going to be as good. And so I think that predisposes people to set up the camera in the back. It's like I, I've been in these conversations where it's like, okay, which – do we want people to feel like they're in the front row? Do we want people to feel like they're in the back? Like I don't want them to feel like they're in any row. I want them to feel like they are where they are. And I want the, the experience uh-huh. Uh-huh. to be catered to those people. In the, and that's why I think that the the people in the living rooms often works better. Like – a, I think it's endearing and wonderful when you see the rabbi or the cantor who's usually up there like looking grand and wonderful like with random chaos in the background. Kids – like I think there's something endearing and, and lovely about that as as somebody experiencing the service. And I don't know. It's just, like you're closer. You're just – you're seeing people closer. I think the difference between zoom in and zoom out um, – I'm talking not about zoom the program, just the camera thing – is massive. And the thing that is a – once again, we have to be okay with saying stuff is better digitally than in person well, sometimes. I, I'm really excited because I have um, a sports analogy that I want to d- throw at oh, you nice. and, and have you the, respond okay, to. Okay. I'll quick I'll – okay. quick re- but basically like – I think that we have to recognize that one benefit, an actual benefit, a thing that is better about digital services versus uh, on the ground proximal services is that you can see a higher quantity of people up close at one point in time. If Once again, this is if you're in a Zoom meeting, but even if you're not, if you're like – you can see the cantor and rabbi up close even if you're not in the front row which is a huge benefit. It means that you get to have that intimacy without being the spotlight, without having the spotlight on you in the first row, which makes a lot of people nervous. If anybody who's gone to a synagogue service knows the joke is the first two, three rows are always empty because nobody wants to sit in the first couple rows because then there's like, they're kind of being watched. Um, anyway, I'll pause. Your sports okay, analogy. Okay, my sports analogy, which is exciting because you're usually the one who makes sports analogies yeah. and I'm resistant to them. But my my analogy here is that, and you might think this is sacrilege, which would be good if you do, um, which is that um, that there are some people who love to go to the games and I am not one of them. I mean, every no, once in a while. Okay, good. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> every once in a while, I, I like to go to a game. Every once in a while, like maybe once a year, I like to go to a baseball game because there is some real amazing feel about being in the stadium. But to watch baseball, to actually appreciate the game, I much prefer to see it on TV and football 100% I prefer to see on TV because when I go to a football game, I cannot understand what's happening. Um, and it's partly because I'm far away and I can't see where the ball is. And partly it's because like I appreciate the announcer explaining things because I don't know as much about football from a kind of rules and regulation standpoint as I do about baseball. And so there are all kinds of reasons why for someone like me, the television watching experience of uh, of a sports game is generally much, much much better for me than um, going to the game, and yep. I would say that um, that you know that that I that that I prefer to watch the game live because somehow I still feel like I'm there in a certain way. Whereas if it, even if I don't know the score, I still don't like watching it, you know, on TiVo because I just feel like eh, it's already happened. You are there. I mean, that's the thing. You are. The, so I, I want to say a bunch of things about that. First off, I love, uh, I didn't think of that at all. And this is perfect for so many reasons. And it's not sacrilege. Like this is a generally, when I talk to deep sports fans, this is a very common threat. I, I talk with my dad about this all the time. My dad, I don't think has gone to a professional football game in decades, maybe one or two. Um, part of that is that we live in Milwaukee and Green Bay is the closest team and it's a couple hours away and there's the season tickets are sold out for decades upon decades. Um, but also, it's kind of accepted that it is a better viewing experience 
to just if your goal is to watch the game and to and to see what's happening in the game, it is a better viewing experience to watch on CBS or Fox um, or ESPN when they do Monday night or whatever um, than it is to be at the stadium, even if you're on the 50 yard line. Because and, and I want to say a bunch of things about that. One, the entire viewing experience has been shaped for the viewers. Um, now, the re- like we we don't need to go into like capitalism and all of that, but like there have been decades upon decades of honing that experience. I mean, you can watch games from 40, 50 years ago when this was new and it was not, I mean, at that point, it was a much closer call between which is the better experience, watching in person or watching online. Right now, we are at a point in virtually every sport where the main difference is, and this is probably true of the religious side too, right? Like the main difference is sort of the the stadium vibe, like being at the stadium, hearing the cheers, like getting the hot dog at the baseball game because that's sort of like, you know, that's like, that's the ritual that you do is you have the the hot dog at the, you have a beer at the stadium. Um, those experiential things that are not about viewing, that are just about being there, you know, doing the wave when it goes around the stadium, all of that stuff. That's what you gain by going to a game, not by, not the viewing experience. I think virtually everybody would agree. And football is the best example because football we don't even notice as a as a television watcher, first off, no matter where they are in the field, the camera moves so that you are even with them. If you are even on the 50-yard line, you know, the perfect middle of the field, if they're at the 10-yard line, you are not seeing it very well. You can't tell what's happening um, unless you have A, really good eyes and B, a really good understanding of the game and know where to be looking for certain kinds of things. All that work is done for you by talented professionals in TV studios um, so it's not sacrilege. Now, what I'd say is we have not done that with Jewish service. We, and look, part of that is we haven't had the decades upon decades yet to, to try. Um, so I don't want to say we're like totally failing, but I also think we're not, we're not, we're not crafting the experience around viewers at home yet. We're, um, and we, we're starting to with Zoom, but like even how the stadium is set up, how stadiums are built. How basketball stadiums, how football stadiums, how baseball stadiums are built is with TV viewers in mind. Like I know of zero synagogues in the universe where, uh, and maybe there are some. I, I'd love to hear about. I know them. of at least two. Um, so great. Um, I know of very few synagogues who have actually crafted their building, their their space around what a live stream person would experience. That's the kind of thing we need to start doing. If we if we actually want this to grow, which once again I don't think everybody does want that yet, but I do. Well, so, well, like, I let me let me let me say a controversial thing. I think I mentioned this last time, sort of in passing, but I want to make it really clear because I want people to hear what's actually happening with those streaming viewers. When I am watching those streaming services, I might be making coffee, I might be getting dressed, I might be you know doing various things, I might be paying attention with my full attention. Now, a lot of times I think people have a sort of judgmental notion that if you're coming to services, you should only be at services. So that means, first of all, the best is to be there in person. If you're going to be there not in person, at least you should be spending all of your attention on it. If you're there not in person and not paying full attention on it, then something has gone wrong. Now, I I think that, you know, that's fine if people want to have that approach. I think that there's room for an entrepreneurial approach to services. And I will tell you that surprisingly, I'm finding myself to be a customer for this. That 
would be um, that don't like to come to services. By the way, when I come to services, I also don't pay 100% attention. I bring a book to read because it's just not for me, you know, but um, but but there's a lot of people But I and I go, you know, only because of social obligations and, you know, whatever, bar mitzvah, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but when I go, I always bring a book because I just can't sit there for that long and, and pay attention to it. And so when I'm at home, I'm actually doing exactly what I'm doing in the synagogue, but I'm way happier. And, um, and, and, and I think that there could very well be lots of synagogues that say, well, we don't want to cater to that. That's not the kind of, you know, customer or, you know, member that we really appreciate, you know, and it's like, fine, then, then that's fine. But I'm going to look around now that I've had the taste of this, I'm going to be looking around for somebody who's going to say, we are there to cater to you because I've actually discovered a need in myself. And by the way, this is, or I don't know about a need, that might be an overstatement, but a, but an interest in my, you know, something that I'm willing to, to do uh, in, a, in a much more serious way than I would have thought. And the reason is because it's available to me in a new way. By the way, this is classical disruptive innovation theory. Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma is all about what is called the uh, non-consumer or the um, or the marginal consumer, that's not the right word, but the, the, the peripheral consumer, meaning it's the people who are not buying the current product. And the classic story of disruptive innovation and these, these new innovations that sort of take over the world is that the innovator caters to the people who are not buying the previous product and does it in a way that actually helps them with things that they're looking for. And usually the dominant player in that market says those are kind of low end customers. Either they're not going to pay that much, right? We're, we're used to having thousands of dollars of dues. Yeah, I'm not going to pay thousands of dollars to have a digital at home experience, but I might pay a hundred dollars, a few hundred dollars, maybe, you know, I pay $50 a month. Uh, sorry, I pay $50 a year to be a member of Preet Bharara's uh, podcast club. So I get an extra special podcast from Preet Bharara. So I would certainly pay that to a synagogue that was offering me a digital experience. That's the classic innovator dilemma. So on the one hand, we have uh, uh, participants who pay $2,000, $3,000 a year in dues. On the other hand, we have Dan Liebenson paying $50 a year of dues. Well, obviously, why are we going to cater to the Dan Liebensons of the world? Well, if you can create a, a, a product that is either much cheaper or that can get thousands of Dan Liebensons to pay $50 versus the dozens or a couple hundred people that are paying, you know, 3000 then you might actually be better off in the long term. But in the short term, that's a hard transition. So anyway, what I'm just describing here is the beginnings of a classic uh, disruptive innovation situation. And the difference between what is happening now versus what has been happening is that now all of a sudden, everybody's in this digital wilderness. And so all of a sudden, there's a way of kind of um, testing that potential demand that wasn't really available before. And now my question is, what's going to happen on the other side of this? What are synagogues going to do on the other side of this? Because I think that the vast majority of them, right, the day that the coronavirus ends, are going to do either that they're going to just say, oh, that was a nice experiment to do the streaming services, but now we're going back to the real thing and we're going to stop the streaming services. Possibility number one, if they weren't streaming before. Possibility number two, if they were streaming before, but they had been doing the much more engaging, intimate, you know, at home version, uh, like, you know, that, um, that they're going to say, okay, but now we're going back to the synagogue where we're going to be streaming now with the camera in the back of the room. You know, option number three, some people might say, hey, we're going to go back and now we're going to do a 
three camera setup in the synagogue, like Central Synagogue has been doing, um, or you know Temple Sholem, Miriam Turlinchamp Synagogue in uh, Cincinnati has a whole. Uh, it's a very small synagogue with a whole streaming setup. It's not. It's not sort of multi-camera, but it has a whole kind of soundboard in the back, and they're very serious about the streaming. That was the example that I had about a synagogue that was actually built for streaming. So, so you know, maybe more synagogues will will go to Miriam Turlinchamp and say, "Can you help us set up a streaming situation in our in our synagogue so it'll be a much better experience?" Now, by the way, one of the reasons why Central Synagogue does this amazing job of streaming, uh, and v- very few other synagogues had been before, is because it was very expensive, and they had the money to be able to set it up. But it's not that expensive anymore. And there are ways for just a very small, a couple thousand dollars, you can get a three camera set up in your synagogue. And then uh, there are all kinds of ways. So it's not expensive anymore. And that's also part of the innovator's dilemma and the disruptive innovation is that the costs go down. Uh, and and now it's, it's a, a market that people think they can't get into, but they actually can. So the question is whether, so now some synagogues are going to go back and say, okay, we can create a kind of beautiful streaming experience with three cameras, et cetera, in our old synagogue chapel. Okay, that's good. That's better. That's definitely better. And I would be thrilled if dozens of synagogues start to set up much better streaming experiences from their chapel, from their sanctuary. But the ultimate, to me, is for some synagogue to say, hey, we're not going back. You know, this this streaming situation from the rabbi's home, from the cantor's home, is so good. And we have attracted a national audience now who won't be with us even if we go back to our chapel with three cameras, because what they're responding to is the intimacy of the experience that we've been able to give here on digital. I I can't I, I will be shocked if a single synagogue says makes that decision. And and the 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 last thing I want to say is that I think they should. And number two is just that. If they don't, there is a room there, there's room there for an entrepreneur to create that experience and to kind of corner the market. That's all I have to yeah, say. Well, I'm, I'm a little more optimistic than you, I think. I mean, I've got one closing thought and then we really will close. But um, I think just to synthesize this all, the, the points you make about um, – you brought up Clayton Christensen. Like I want to bring up the jobs to be done and I want to do it through the sports side first um, just because I'm really – you opened up a really important set of things. But – First off, um, you talked about how like – or you have talked in the past about how sometimes something that is like quote unquote lower quality is exactly what you need in the short term to, to, to achieve something in the long term. It will get better over time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've said for a long time, going back to the experience of somebody going to a stadium, baseball, I am the biggest booster of going to minor league baseball games. Over, and by the way, if I had a choice, if I were in a city, there there are virtually no cities that have both minor league and major league baseball for a variety of reasons. But if I were living in a place that had equal access to both, I would go much more frequently to the minor league baseball game than the major league baseball game. Now, why? First off, way cheaper. That's obvious thing number one. Second off, they the minor league baseball, more than almost any other sport, they know that what they are doing, what their product is, is not baseball. People don't go to minor league baseball games to watch baseball. 
Like, uh, if you're the real diehard that wants to see the AA, AAA guys before they go pro, maybe you go for that purpose. But, like, if you pull a random person aside at a minor league baseball game and ask, like, what place in the standings is is this minor league team that you are literally watching right now? They do not know. Ask them to name three players on the roster when they're not looking at the scoreboard that lists them. They also do not know. And I'm saying that as somebody who, like, I wouldn't pass that test. And I, like, am a reasonably deep sports fan. Um, you go to the minor league baseball game. Game, and this is why they're better because they recognize that nobody's going unless it's fun. Like the product they're selling is hanging out with friends or like the experience that they're doing. Like it has to be more fun to just hang out there with friends than it would be to go to a bar or to go to a movie or to like they're competing with a set of things that are not like other baseball games. They would lose if they were if double A was competing against Major League Baseball, like the Major League Baseball is better. But it turns out there's actually a real audience of people. A lot of young families go to my, mostly because of cost, but also because it's fun and they do more gimmicks. Like there's a lot to say there. And um, and I also think that what they've realized is that the entire stadium basically is to quote you, the talk to Goldberg people. So you talked about with synagogues, how there's some people who go to talk to God and there's others who go to talk to Goldberg or Goldstein. or I, I've, I heard it as Garfinkel growing up. It was in our camp's prayer book it actually said this in the prayer hmm. book which is cool um and by the way a bunch of like young kids as like an 11 year old i remember talking about this like we already understood that that was true that people go to talk to go to garfinkel and like the minor league baseball game everybody is there to talk to garfinkel and we know that and it's not even a problem like we've crafted the whole experience around it so how do we do that with synagogues and how do we do it with streaming services which still by the way we have not figured out how to with streaming services reach the talk to garfinkel folks um even the great services even the intimate ones like they are services they're not they're not i haven't seen many that are doing like roundtable conversations or simulating the own egg afterwards the kiddish afterwards um we should start doing that um anyway yeah. so we can. We're going to close this out Wait, before we do. And, um, yeah, Dan, I just want to just just one uh, note that I know you're going to say our email addresses at the end, but I just want to say that folks who want to send us uh, what they did for Passover should send it to the email addresses that Lex is about to announce. And the other thing that I just want to note is that we are starting a bunch of really awesome shows on Jewish Live in the next few weeks, uh, in starting with a weekly show with Joy Layden this week, a weekly show with Richard Elliott Friedman starting next week, and a weekly uh, show with Sarah Boonin Benor, the linguist, uh, starting later this week. And a, a lot of other things coming up. So a lot of the sort of, let's say, superstars that have been on Judaism Unbound are starting to put together weekly shows on Jewish Live. And we're super excited about that. And I only wanted to reinforce and mention it here. We'll talk about it more in upcoming shows. But I want to really reinforce it here only because it's a version of what we've just been talking about in the sense that it is a new digital creation that is not a version of something that already exists out in the world. It is something entirely new. And it's just the most exciting thing that these folks who have really made the biggest impressions on us and on our listeners over the years on Judaism Unbound are now able to and are w willing to and want to create these incredible experiences every week for people. So we re really hope that you'll check those out on jewishlive.org. And there is a page called www.jewishlive.org slash originals 
where you'll be able to see all of the back episodes of all of those shows. So that's going to be a, a growing page that we're really, really, really excited about. Yeah, I am stoked about yeah, I mean, just to, to name the three that you just mentioned, because it's worth highlighting those in particular, there will be more. But um, Sarah Bunin Benor, incredible Jewish linguist, um, well, I mean, linguist of Jewish English and of other things. Um, Joy Layden, incredible author, thinker on the overlaps, intersections of Judaism and transgender issues. Richard Elliott Friedman, sort of the pioneer, one of the big names on on the front of source criticism, looking at the Bible and asking who wrote various parts. Really, really top-notch people. Um, so they're each going to have regular shows. So closing out now, we will we will officially round this out. Um, just here are a variety of ways for you to be in touch with us because we really love hearing from you. And it's been especially meaningful during physical distancing to have that to have that happen. So first, there is our Facebook page. We've actually got two Facebook pages, our Judaism Unbound page and our Jewish Live page that you can reach out to us through. We've got our websites also too, JudaismUnbound.com and JewishLive.org. And there are our email addresses, Dan at JudaismUnbound.com and Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. Uh, one more request we like to make is that we really do appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way. And you can do that either at judaismunbound.com slash donate or at jewishlive.org slash donate. Uh, so hit us up at either of those spots. And uh, that's it, it's really been special so far in just a few weeks to to hear from all of you and to start building this this new experiment called Jewish Live. So whatever you're able to do, even if it's not financial, in supporting us and sharing with your friends, inviting a few folks to like our page, that would be super meaningful. So thank you so much. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound Live. <laughs>